This is the Data Privacy Detective, and today our focus is on how the United States government collects and uses foreign intelligence, and how that affects the privacy not only of foreign uh, residents, but of U.S. residents. Congress is now considering in August of 2023 whether to extend the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, and you hear that called FISA, F-I-S-A. We'll discuss recent reports of how the FBI has used the FISA database, or more properly databases, to gather information about U.S. persons and to identify or warn victims of cyber attacks and personal threats. With us to understand this, how foreign intelligence and data privacy intertwined and sometimes clash are Gene Price and Yugo Nagashima. Gene Price is a partner in Frost Brown Todd's Louisville office. He concentrates on cybersecurity, data management, maritime matters, and supply chain legal issues. He recently retired as Rear Admiral from the United States Navy, where he supported U.S. Cyber Command and Naval Information Forces Reserve. Hugo Nagashima is a partner in Frost Brown Todd's Washington, D.C. office. He is a deputy chair of the firm's data security and privacy team and is licensed to practice law in both the United States and Japan. Well, Gene, let me turn to you first. Uh, what is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act first adopted 45 years ago in 1978? Uh, thanks, Joe. It's an honor to be on your podcast. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was enacted all those 45 years ago in order to do surveillance on foreign targets. And targets under FISA is a, a very specifically de defined term. It allows the U.S. government through various means to collect intelligence on uh, people who could be threats to us at any level. That could include uh, foreign uh, nation states, foreign uh, terrorists, foreign uh, criminals. It could be just about anything. And it you're allowed to do that tar targeted surveillance without a warrant that goes through the normal legal process. It goes to what's called the FISA court, which is composed of uh, a number of sitting federal district court judges. So they're, they're real district court judges, but they are outside of their normal jurisdiction. And it's largely they, done in secret because of the nature of collecting foreign insurance, uh, foreign intelligence, which uh, all nations do, let's face it. Well, let's focus today on Section 702 of, of, the, of FISA. What does Section 702 allow the U.S. government's foreign intelligence agencies to do? Well, 702, let me go to the amendments, uh, which were enacted in 2008 in the wake of 9-11 uh, and the 9-11 Commission report. The government saw the need for there to be better cooperation among the intelligence community, which is uh, within the federal government. It's the FBI, it's CIA, it's all the different services, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Department of Defense writ large. And right, and if I may, sure Gene, uh, at the time with 9-11, uh, there were concerns, well, if only the FBI had talked to the NSA and all these things, maybe 9-11 wouldn't have happened. We'll never know. But that, 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 that led to these amendments. Correct. It also allowed uh, the 
the intelligence community, the IC, to do more intensive collection to catch up with technology. The old uh, FISA, as it was enacted back in the 70s, did not anticipate email or cell phones and things like that. So essentially, the amendments allowed the government to capture communications now in this new era. Subject to some it, uh, some review and uh, by the FISA court, as as you've described. Well, let let help us understand what role does the FBI play here? Now we we understand the FBI is a, a United States. They're not a, they're a United States entity that's supposed to focus on the United States. How's that separate from uh, foreign intelligence agencies? Well, the foreign intelligence agencies are more the CIA's, the defense intelligence agencies, groups like that. FBI is also a foreign intelligence agency, but for a law enforcement, very narrow niche. They do counterintelligence. And counterintelligence uh, is uh, probably one of the most difficult uh, arts of intelligence to perform. And they, uh, FISA has several limitations to it that folks need to understand. First off, you cannot target and a target is a package of person who's been identified. It's brought to the FISA court. Please allow us to target this person. And the FISA court, based upon the evidence before them, says yes or no. They, right. The FISA court cannot allow anyone, a U.S. person, regardless of their location, or any person located inside the United States, regardless of their nationality. Or, and this is a sensitive part, a foreign person who is located abroad in another country for the purpose of targeting a U.S. person, whether they're here in the United States or elsewhere. In other words, you can't back into collection on a U.S. person. The problem becomes incidental collection. Well, Go ahead. take 9-11 as an example. I mean, if, if, the, if the foreigners who uh, were involved in that were phoning people in the United States to try to do things, we would have wanted to know that, right? And what do we call that? Is that the incidental collection of, of uh, information about U.S. persons? Or how, how does that work? Uh, yeah, good question. And it's a um, little bit complex, but the Cliff Notes version of incidental collection is Congress recognized back in 2008 that they were going to be picking up U.S. persons' uh, communications because they already knew that there are some folks that mean to do us harm that are present in the United States. The law says you can't collect on those folks, but we know that when we collect on a foreign person for whatever good reason, that they are uh, occasionally going to be talking to people within the United States. And statistically, that's roughly about 5% of all collection actually includes a U.S. person. So that is what's known as incidental collection. So when we talk today about the FISA database, it's really a number of different databases collected by the National Security Agency or the CIA or other people. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And... Um, now, we understand this digital database, which is for foreign intelligence gathering, has information about U.S. persons. So how is that dealt with? Because now we're dealing with the rights of U.S. citizens uh, covered by the Fourth Amendment of our Constitution. So there's a, a lot of protections uh, for U.S. persons' information, their communications. Uh, and I have to, some of this information is what's known as minimized. Some of it is unminimized. 
if it's minimized, you're only going to see usually the metadata with you know some exceptions de- uh, depending upon the technical means that the target has used. So that is minimized. If it's unminimized, it's the actual communications. So that is all in a variety of databases. But like you said, it's safest just to call it the FISA database collectively and can actually search that for a U.S. person query and draw information because you already have collected the information under a subpoena. You don't have to, under the rules, you don't have to go back and get another subpoena or um, any kind of warrant to, to do eavesdropping. The data is just there. You can access it. FBI, with their counterintelligence role, is by far and away the most likely federal agency that will have a need of that information. Right. Now, the director of national intelligence issued a report in April of 2023 that disclosed the number of times a query was made, a query was made by the FBI to the FISA database about U.S. persons, classified as a U.S. person query. Now, now what is that? A U.S. person query is where the FBI deliberately is trying to collect information on a person who might be in the uh, United States in the incidental collection that is there. The thought is, in a balancing scheme, that person's privacy uh, has already been given up to uh, some foreigner. And since it was incidental, it was not deliberate. And we have it if the FBI thinks that it there's something in that information, they're allowed to look at it. And the rules governing their ability to look at it have changed uh, drastically in the last few years. Yeah, I, query, query, for example, could be, uh, here, here's an email address of a U.S. person or a, a phone number or a name, right? those kinds of things. And then they say, is correct. there anything in the uh, FISA database? That is correct. Anything that has a U.S. person identifier is a U.S. person query. Okay. Now, the <laughs> April 23 report said that in the year 2021, the FBI made U.S. person queries about three million times, <laughs> not, not every now and then. And in 2022, though, the total dropped substantially to about between 100 and 200,000 uh, U.S. person queries. What, what should we make of that? That goes back to the new restrictions that have gradually come online. Let me just fast forward to uh, December of 2022. The Department of Justice and the Director of National Intelligence, the DNI, are the uh, people that can actually go to the FISA court with a request to collect information on a target. Once that information is collected, if it's U.S., it's segregated into that incidental database. And three million times in 2021, the FBI made use to that. Now, I don't know the number, but apparently the majority of those were duplicate requests. More than one agent was looking at the same target and made the same request. Right. It said uh, the report said three million uh, total, but about two million deduplicated, something like that. Yes. Now, in 2022, the Department of Justice trying to scale down the number of those requests and make them thoroughly vet them so that from a legal point of view, we were protecting 
the privacy of U.S. persons to the maximum ex extent possible under the rules, issued some new requirements for the FBI to look at this incidental data. For instance, they um, have something called batch queries. If you request more than 100 identifiers in one U.S. person query, then you have to get, uh, apparently, which was fairly common, you have to get an attorney's approval who's trained in the privacy issues for U.S. persons. And you have to, you have to satisfy that person. So that's one of the things that uh, changed. And we just found out about this, I believe, in April. They also require FBI personnel, personnel to, anytime there's certain sensitivities to an investigation, such as, well, this is a person in public office, or this is a public figure, or anything like that, that uh, even if it's a single request, those have to go for attorney approval. But in my mind, and the report that you're talking about doesn't say this, but just having thinking through the process, they now have to have case-specific justifications made anytime that you are looking at a U.S. person. The DOJ requires FBI to now require any agent or any analyst to enter a case-specific justification for every U.S. person query they make. So that might not sound like much, but what it essentially is doing is in order to query the U.S. database under these new rules, you have to have an independent justification before you can even ask for it. And there's some folks who are saying, well, this has gone too far, but that's a topic for another day. But for the way it works, that is probably the preeminent reason why we've gone from 3 million to uh, roughly 200,000, of which I think 120,000 were not were unduplicated. Unduplicated, so, but that's still a lot of people. And it, it you know, yes. if there's a target, let's say the uh, FBI is investigating whether whether a business or a business person in the United States violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, or let's just say that a candidate for president of the United States is alleged to have uh, begun uh, some sort of uh, devious activity with a foreigner, you know, uh, th this could happen without a, a warrant issued. And that, that, that's the issue that's being debated. Do I get it right, Gene? Yes. And there's one, uh, in my opinion, uh, critical aspect to this. Of those 120,000, more than half of those had to do with cyber attacks or cyber espionage. And the FBI justification has been, we've got to look at the communications with these U.S. persons because we don't know who they are, and we want to warn them. So That's it's right. actually more uh, prophylactic. Cyber theft is, a, I'm sure we all agree, we uh, that's a major problem. Well, let me turn, thank you, Jane. Let me turn to Hugo now. And well, what are the privacy implications of what Jean has described? Thanks, Joe. Uh, it's great to be back. The privacy implications obviously comes from the fact that there are certain principles that uh, you know the EU has, um, APEC has, which is which always starts with disclosure that if information or pri private information, personal information is being collected, there's a disclosure. And then there's other aspects such as data minimization and certain rights, as if right to be forgotten, deleted, uh, right to know. Um, but those protections are not really existent with the 
FISA queries or uh, the FISA collection. And it, it makes sense, right? Because this is done for the purpose of espionage. Espionage, you're not going to tell the other person, hey, we're collecting your data because then they won't talk about it or they'll use a different platform. So just innately, right? Philosophically, there's a conflict between uh, the collection of data for you know signal intelligence versus uh, data privacy. So you're talking about the global flow of just normal business data, say, between the European Union and the United States and the GDPR, of course, very tough rules in European Union. The United States doesn't yet have a, a, a comprehensive federal code about data privacy. And so it's affecting the uh, the personal data flows between these two great uh, trading territories. Definitely is. Uh, GDPR does not uh, make exceptions for governments. Uh, it requires governments and uh, commercial entities to abide by the rule. And um, we're seeing a lot of that effect. And as most people who uh, dabble in privacy would know, that there's been uh, litigation over it called the, Sh- called the Schrems litigation. Uh, there's Schrems 1, which dealt with the safe harbor this rule. This is in the, with, if I may, this is in the European courts. That's right. That's right. Uh, and Mr. And, Schrems is a plaintiff in some of these, become quite famous about it. And he's been successful in challenging the uh, right of uh, U.S. businesses and people to collect information about Europeans. Right. Not just U.S. businesses, but the framework that the U.S. government under the Department of Commerce has put together. So a huge impact. And that has caused um, the data flows, as you've noted, uh, to uh, take a different approach to protecting privacy. Uh, before, it used to be the safe harbor rule and the privacy shield. But now uh, we are back to what's called standard contractual clauses, which requires 30, 40 pages of documents to be put in place. And, you know, although it is very helpful to have those items, um, certain individuals still feel that their privacy is not fully protected. Of course, so we're talking about queries, U.S. person queries, but also queries about uh, European, Asian and other people around the world. So uh, you can see why the European Union and other countries might say, wait a minute, you're using our residents' uh, data inadequately from our our standpoint. But also from a U.S. standpoint, uh, all of what Gene has described uh, raises concerns, doesn't it, about just classic U.S. law, constitutional law and otherwise, the Fourth Amendment, basic privacy principles that uh, apply to U.S. persons? That's right. Um, So... As most people who've taken civic classes in high school or taken constitutional law classes uh, in college or in law school will know that um, in order to do a search of a home or search of a person, you'll need a warrant. And that's the Fourth Amendment. But as it has been explained, if it's an incidental collection, that data is already there, existent, and there's no warrant. And it's it, it, some. Privacy advocates have argued that it is a warrantless search. Yeah. Well, Jane, let's turn back to you for a minute. Any any further comments uh, and kind of a as a whole perspective, uh, adding in what uh, Hugo has described. I agree with uh, what uh, Hugo was talking about. It is certainly something that, as Americans and our First Amendment rights and the privacy that springs from those rights. We need to be very careful about how we handle this information. Uh, At the same time, we have to be very careful about making sure that we are secure and we're safe. 
So there's a balance, at least in my mind, that has to happen here. We don't have a satisfactory answer for just about anyone just yet, but we're going to have to figure this out. And as you said at the beginning, Congress is going to make a decision one way or the other by the end of the year. So uh, we'll be following this closely. And Joe, just to add, uh, we are seeing some developments, um, at least on the executive side in the United States and Europe. The Biden administration has released a new executive order uh, increasing, bolstering the protections of uh, foreign persons for the collection of their data and creating certain remedies in order to overcome the uh, European Court's decision on SHREMS 2, which invalidated the privacy shield. So there are certain mechanisms being added in place. But again, this isn't this doesn't mean that everything will be smooth sailing. As uh, we understand, Mr. Shrems is planning a new litigation, a new case called Shrems 3. So uh, as Gene said, this is still in development, but uh, we will have to eventually find an answer that's satisfactory, that balances both espionage concerns and privacy concerns. Right. And of course, Pfizer- Say national security concerns, sorry. And of course, Pfizer's up for renewal or not by December 31 of this year. So something's got to be done. Now, the Biden administration supports, very strongly supports renewing Pfizer. But there are opponents on 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 both sides of the aisle here. Some progressive Democrats tend to favor the ACLU's campaign that uh, Pfizer's even unconstitutional, a, a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Some populist Republicans argue that the FBI has become politically weaponized, going back to 2016, uh, 16, when they argue the FBI tried to interfere with the 2016 election by investigating reports of one candidate's involvement with Russia in disinformation efforts. So this is a hotly debated topic, and in a future podcast, we'll uh, bring Hugo and Gene back to d- debate and discuss the issues of renewing FISA, because we need all to explore how the United States should balance the need to gather and use foreign intelligence for national security and for combating crime against the competing interest of personal privacy as it evolves in a digital world. Thank you both, uh, Hugo and Jean, and I'll remind listeners, as I always do in closing, protecting your personal data begins with you.